0: Section three of A Lady's Visit to the Gold Diggings of Australia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lady's Visit to the Gold Diggings of Australia by Ellen Casey. Section three Camping Up, Melbourne to the Black Forest the anxiously expected morning at length commenced and a dismal-looking morning it was hazy and damp with a small drizzling rain which from the gloomy aspect above seemed likely to last it was not however sufficient to damp our spirits and the appointed hour found us all assembled to attack the last meal that we anticipated to make for some time to come beneath the shelter of a ceiling at eight o'clock our united party was to start from the duke of york hotel and, as that hour drew nigh, the unmistakable signs of something up attracted a few idlers to witness our departure. In truth we were a goodly party, and created no little sensation among the loungers, but I must regularly introduce our troop to my readers. First, then, I must mention two large drays, each drawn by a pair of stout horses, one the property of two Germans who were bound for Forest Creek, the other belonged to ourself and shipmates there were three pack-horses one laden with a speculation in brand belonged to a queer-looking sailor who went by the name of joe the other two were under the care of a man named gregory who was going to rejoin his mates at eagle hawk gully as his destination was the farthest and he was well acquainted with the roads he ought to have been elected leader but from some mismanagement that dignity was conferred upon a stout old gentleman who had taken a pleasure-trip to Mount Alexander the previous summer. Starting is almost always a tedious affair, nor was this particular case an exception. First one had forgotten something, another broke a strap, and a new one had to be procured. Then the dray was not properly packed, and must be righted, "'Someone else wanted an extra nobbler, then a fresh, and still a fresh delay. "'So that although eight was the appointed hour, "'it was noon ere we bade farewell to mine host at the Duke of York. "'At length the word of command was spoken. "'Foremost came the gallant captain, as we had dubbed him, "'and with him two ship-doctors, in partnership together, "'who carried the signs of their profession along with them "'in the shape of a most surgeon-like mahogany box.' THEN CAME TWO GERMANS, COMPLACENTLY SMOKING THEIR meerschaums, AND ATTENDING TO THEIR DRAY AND HORSES, WHICH LATTER, UNLIKE THEIR MASTERS, WERE OF A VERY RESTLESS TURN OF MIND. AFTER THESE CAME A PARTY OF SIX, AMONG WHOM WAS GREGORY AND TWO LIVELY FRENCHMEN, WHO KEPT UP AN INCESSANT CHATTERING. JOE WALKED BY HIMSELF, LEADING HIS pack horse. THEN CAME OUR FOUR SHIPMATES, TWO BY TWO, AND LAST OUR OWN PARTICULAR FIVE. Most carried on their backs their individual property, blankets, provisions for the road, etc., rolled in a skin, and fastened over the shoulders by leathern strap. This bundle goes by the name of Swag, and is the digger's usual accompaniment, it being too great a luxury to place upon a dray or pack-horse anything not absolutely necessary.' This will be easily understood when it is known that carriers during the winter obtained £120 and sometimes a £150 a tonne for conveying goods to Bendigo, about 100 miles from Melbourne. Nor was the sum exorbitant, as beside the chance of a few weeks' stick in the mud, they run great risk of injuring their horses or bullocks. Many a valuable beast has been obliged to be shot where it stood, it being found impossible to extricate it from the mud and swamp. "'At the time we started, the sum generally demanded was about seventy pounds per tonne. "'On the price of carriage-up depended, of course, the price of provisions at the diggings. "'The weight of one of these swags is far from light. "'The provender for the road itself is by no means trifling, "'though that, of course, diminishes by the way, and lightens the load a little. "'Still there are blankets, firearms, drinking and eating apparatus, clothing, chamois leather for the gold that has yet to be dug, and numberless other cumbersome articles necessary for the digger. In every belt was stuck either a large knife or a tomahawk, two shouldered their guns, by the by, rather imprudent, as the sight of firearms often brings down an attack. Some had thick sticks, fit to fell a bullock. Altogether, we seemed well prepared to encounter an entire army of bush-rangers. I felt tolerably comfortable perched upon our dray, amid a mass of other soft lumber. A bag of flour formed an easy support to lean against. On either side I was well walled in by the canvas and poles of our tent. A large cheese made a convenient footstool. My attire, although well suited for the business on hand, would hardly have passed muster in any other situation. A dress of common dark blue serge... A felt wide-awake, and a waterproof coat wrapped round me, made a ludicrous assortment. Going along at a foot-pace, we descended Great Bourke Street, and made our first halt opposite the post-office, where one of our party made a last effort to obtain a letter from his lady-love, which was, alas, unsuccessful. But we move on again, past the horse bazaar, turn into Queen Street, up we go towards Flemington, leaving the Melbourne Cemetery on our right, and the flagstaff a little to the left, and now our journey may be considered fairly begun. Just out of Melbourne, passing to the east of the benevolent asylum, we went over a little rise called Mount Pleasant, which, on a damp sort of day, with the rain beating about one, seemed certainly a misnomer. After about two miles we came to a branch road leading to Pentridge, where the government convict establishment is situated. This we left on our right, and through a line of country thickly wooded, consisting of red and white gum, stringy bark, cherry, and other trees, we arrived at Flemington, which is about three miles and a half from town. Flemington is a neat little village or township, consisting of about forty houses, a blacksmith's shop, several stores, and a good inn, built of brick and stone, with very fair accommodation for travellers, and a large stable and stockyards. After leaving Flemington we passed several nice-looking homesteads, some are on a very large scale, and belong to gentlemen connected with Melbourne who prefer living out of town. On reaching the top of the hill beyond Flemington there is a fine view of Melbourne, the bay, Williamstown, and the surrounding country, but the miserable weather prevented us at this time from properly enjoying it. Sunshine was all we need to have made this portion of our travels truly delightful, the road was nicely level, fine trees sheltered it on either side, while ever and anon some rustic farmhouse was passed, or coffee-shop, temporarily erected of canvas or blankets, offered refreshments such as it was, and the latest news of the diggings to those who had no objection to pay well for what they had. This Flemington Road, which is considered the most pleasant in Victoria, or at least anywhere near Melbourne, is very good as far as Tulip writes. Which we now approached. Wright's public house is kept by the man whose name it bears. It is a rambling, ill built, but withal pleasing looking edifice, built chiefly of weatherboard and shingle, with a verandah all around. The whole is painted white, and whilst at some distance from it, a passing ray of sunshine gave it a most peculiar effect. In front of the principal entrance is a thundering large lamp, a most conspicuous looking object. Wright himself was formerly in the police, and being a sharp fellow, obtained the cognomen of Tulip, by which both he and his house have always been known. And so inseparable have the names become, that whilst Tulip Wrights is renowned well nigh all over the colonies, the simple name of the owner would create some inquiries. The state of accommodation here may be gathered from the success of some of the party who had a penchant for nobblers of brandy. "'Nothing but bottled beer in the house.' "'What could we have for dinner?' inquired one, rather amused at this Hobson's Choice state of affair. "'The eatables was only cold meat, and they couldn't cook nothing fresh,' was the curt reply. "'Can we sleep here?' "'Yes, under your drays. As we had literally determined to camp out on the journey, we passed on, without partaking of their cold eatables, or availing ourselves of their permission to sleep under our own drays and, leaving the road to Sydney on our right and the one to Keela straight before us, we turn short off to the left toward the deep creek. Of the two rejected routes I will give a very brief account. The right-hand road leads to Sydney via Kilmore, and many going to the diggings prefer using this road as far as that township. The country about here is very flat, stony and destitute of timber, Occasionally the journey is varied by a water hole or surface spring. After several miles a public house called the Lady of the Lake is reached, which is reckoned by many the best country inn on this or any other road in the colonies. The accommodation is excellent, and the rooms well arranged and independent of the house. There are ten or twelve rooms which on a push could accommodate fifty or sixty people. Six are arranged in pairs for the convenience of married persons and the fashionable trip during the honeymoon, particularly for diggers' weddings, is to the lady of the lake. Whether Sir Walter's poem be the origin of the sign, or whether the swamp's in the rear, I cannot say, but decidedly there is no lake and no lady, though I have heard of a buxom lass, the landlord's daughter, who acts as barmaid, and is a great favourite. This spot was the scene last May of a horrible murder, which has added no little to the notoriety of the neighbourhood. After several miles you at length arrive at Kilmore, which is a large and thriving township, containing two places of worship, several stores and inns. There is a resident magistrate with his staff of officials, and a station for a detachment of mounted police. Kilmore is on the main overland road from Melbourne to Sydney, and, although not on the confines of the two colonies, is rather an important place, from being the last main township till you reach the interior of new south wales the government buildings are commodious and well arranged there are several farms and stations in the neighbourhood but the country round is flat and swampy the middle road leads you direct to keeler and you must cross the deep creek in a dangerous part as the banks thereabout are very steep the stream though narrow very rapid and the bottom stony in eighteen fifty one the bridge an ordinary log one was washed down by the floods and for two months all communication was cut off government have now put a punt which is worked backwards and forwards every half hour from six in the morning till six at night at certain fares which are doubled after these hours those fares are for a passenger sixpence a horse or bullock a shilling a two-wheeled vehicle one shilling and sixpence a loaded dray two shillings the punt is tolerably well managed except when the man gets intoxicated not an unfrequent occurrence when there was neither bridge or punt those who wished to cross were obliged to ford it and so strong has been the current that horses have been carried down one or two hundred yards before they could effect the landing keeler is a pretty little village with a good inn several nice cottages and a store or two the country round is hilly and barren scarcely any herbage and that little is rank and coarse the timber is very scarce this road to the diggings is not much used but to return to ourselves the rain and bad roads made travelling so very wearisome that before we had proceeded far it was unanimously agreed that we should halt and pitch our first encampment pitch our first encampment how charming Exclaims some romantic reader as though it were an easily accomplished undertaking fixing a gypsy tent at a fete champetre with a smiling sky above and all requisites ready to hand is one thing and attempting to sink poles and erect tents out of blankets and rugs in a high wind and pelting rain is if i may be allowed the colonialism a horse of quite another colour some sort of sheltering places were at length completed the horses were taken from the dray and tethered to some trees within sight and then we made preparations for satisfying the unromantic cravings of hunger symptoms of which we all more or less began to feel with some difficulty a fire was kindled and kept alight in the hollow trunk of an old gum-tree a damper was speedily made which with a plentiful supply of steaks and boiled and roasted eggs was a supper no means to be despised "'The eggs had been procured at four shillings a dozen "'from a farmhouse we had passed. "'It was certainly the most curious tea-table "'at which I had ever assisted. "'Chairs, of course, there were none. "'We sat or lounged upon the ground "'as best suited our tired limbs. Tin pannikins, holding about a pint, "'served as teacups, "'and plates of the same metal in lieu of china. "'A teapot was dispensed with, "'but a portly substitute there was "'in the shape of an immense iron kettle.' just taken from the fire and placed in the centre of our grand tea-service, which, being a new, a lively imagination, might mistake for silver. Hot spirits, for those desirous of imbibing them, followed our substantial repast, but fatigue and the dreary weather had so completely damped all disposition to conviviality that a very short space of time found all fast asleep except the three unfortunate on watch, "'which was relieved every two hours. "'Wednesday, September the 8th. "'I awoke rather early this morning, "'not feeling over-comfortable "'for having slept in my clothes all night, "'which it is necessary to do on the journey, "'so as to never be unprepared for any emergency. "'A small corner of my brother's tent "'had been partitioned off for my bedroom.' It was quite dark, so my first act on waking was to push aside one of the blankets, still wet, which had been my roof during the night, and thus admit air and light into my apartment. Having made my toilette after a fashion, I joined my companions on the watch, who were deep in the mysteries of preparing something eatable for breakfast. I discovered that their efforts were concentrated on the formation of a damper, which seems to have given them no little difficulty." A damper is the legitimate, and in fact only, bread of the bush, and should be made solely of flour and water, well mixed and kneaded into a cake, as large as you like, but not more than two inches in thickness, and then placed among the hot ashes to bake. If well made, it is very sweet and a good substitute for bread. The rain had, however, spoilt our ashes. The dough would neither rise or brown, so in despair we mixed the fixed batch of flour and water and having fried some rashes of fat bacon till they were nearly melted, we poured the batter into the pan and let it fry till done. This impromptu dish gave a general satisfaction, and was pronounced the cross between a pancake and a heavy suet pudding. Breakfast over, our temporary residence were pulled down, the drays loaded, and our journey recommenced. We soon reached the deep creek, and crossed by means of a punt, "'the charges being the same as the one at Keeler. "'Near here is a station belonging to Mr. Riley, "'which is a happy specimen of a squash's home, "'everything being managed in a superior manner. "'The house itself is erected on a rise, "'and surrounded by an extensive garden, "'vinery and orchard, "'all well stopped and kept. "'Some beautifully enclosed paddocks reach to the creek "'and give an English park-like appearance to the whole.' "'The view from here over the bay and Brighton is splendid. "'You can almost distinguish Geelong. "'About a quarter of a mile off is a little hamlet "'with a neat Swiss-looking church "'built over a schoolroom on a rise of ground. "'It has a most peculiar effect and is the more singular "'as the economising the ground could not be a consideration in the colony. "'On the left of the church is a pretty little parsonage, "'whitewashed with slate roof and green-painted window-frames.' I still fancy, although our redoubtable captains most strenuously denied it, that we had in some manner gone out of our way. However that may be, the road seemed worse and worse as we proceeded, and our pace became more tedious as here and there it was uphill work, till at length we reached the Keeler Plains. It was almost disheartening to look upon that vast expanse of flat and dreary land, except where the eye lingered on the purple sides of Mount Macedon, which rose far distant in front of us. On entering the plains we passed two or three little farmhouses, coffee-shops, etc., and encountered several parties coming home for a trip to Melbourne. For ten miles we travelled on dismally enough, for it rained a great deal, and we were constantly obliged to halt to get the horses rested a little. We now passed a coffee-shop, which although only consisting of a canvas tent and a little wooden shed, has been known to accommodate over forty people of a night. As there are always plenty of bad characters lounging in the neighbourhood of such places, we kept at a respectful distance, and did not make our final halt until two full miles further on our road. Tents were again pitched, but owing to their not being fastened over securely, many of us got an unwished-for shower-bath during the night. But this is nothing. At the Antipodes one soon learns to laugh at such trifles. "'Tuesday the ninth this morning we were up betimes some of our party being so sanguine as to anticipate making the bush in before evening. as we proceeded, this hope quickly faded away. The Keela plain seemed almost impassable, and what with pieces of rock here and a water-hole there, crossing them was more dangerous than agreeable. Now one passed a broken-down dray. Then one's ears were horrified at the oaths an unhappy white was venting at a mud hole into which he had stumbled. A comical object he looked, as half seas over, he attempted to pull on a mud covered boot, which he had just extricated from the hole where it and his leg had parted company. A piece of wood, which his imagination transformed into a shoehorn, was in his hand. Put it in the Larboard, sir, suiting the action to the word. "'There it goes! Damn her! She won't come on! "'Put it in the starboard side! There it goes! Well done, old girl!' "'And he triumphantly rose from the ground and reeled away. "'With a hearty laugh we proceeded on our road, "'and after passing two or three coffee tents we arrived at Gregory's Inn. "'The landlord is considered the best on the road "'and is a practical example of what honesty and industry may achieve.' He commenced some nine months before without a shilling, his Tarpaulin tent and small stock of tea sugar and coffee, etc being alone. He has now a large weatherboard house capable of making up one hundred beds, and even then unable to accommodate all his visitors, so numerous are they, from the good name he bears. Here we got a capital cold dinner of meat, bread, cheese, coffee, tea, etc, for three shillings apiece, and somewhat refreshed went forwards in better spirits though the accounts we had heard there of the bad roads in the black forest would have disheartened many. Mount Macedon now formed quite a beautiful object on our right. A little below that mountain appeared a smaller one, called the Bald Hill, from its peak being quite barren, and the soil of a white limestone and quartz in nature, which gives it a most peculiar and splendid appearance when the sun's rays are shining upon it. As we advanced, the thickly wooded sides of Mount Macedon became more distinct, and our proximity to a part of the country, which we knew to be auriferous, exercised an uncountable yet pleasurable influence over our spirits, which was perhaps increased by the loveliness of the spot where we now pitched our tents for the evening. It was at the foot of the gap. The stately gum-tree, the she-oak, with its gracefully drooping foliage, THE PERFUMED YELLOW BLOSSOM OF THE MIMOSA, THE RICH WOODED MOUNTAIN IN THE BACKGROUND, UNITED TO FORM A PICTURE TOO MAGNIFICENT TO DESCRIBE. THE GROUND WAS CARPETED WITH WILD FLOWERS, THE sarsaparilla BLOSSOMS CREEPING EVERYWHERE. BEFORE US SLOWLY RIPPLED A CLEAR STREAMLET, REFLECTING A THOUSAND TIMES THE DEEPENING tints WHICH THE LAST RAYS OF THE SETTING SUN FLUNG OVER THE SURROUNDING SCENERY. The air rang with the cawing of the numerous cockatoos and parrots of all hues and colours, who made the woods resound with their tones, while their restless movements and gay plumage gave life and piquancy to the scene. That night our beds were composed of the mimosa, which has a perfume like the hawthorn. The softest-looking branches were selected, cut down, and flung upon the ground beneath the tents and formed a bed which to my weary limbs appeared to be the softest and most luxuriant upon which i had slept since my arrival in the colonies. friday the tenth with some reluctance i aroused myself from a very heavy slumber produced by the over-fatigue of the preceding day i found every one preparing to start kindly considerate my companions thought a good sleep more refreshing for me than breakfast and had deferred awakening me till quite obliged so, taking a few sailor's biscuits in my pocket to munch on the way, I bade farewell to a spot whose natural beauties I have never seen surpassed. Proceeding onward, we skirted the bald hill, and entering rather a scrubby tract, crossed a creek more required for our drays than dangerous to ourselves. We then passed two or three little coffee-shops, which being tents are always shifting their quarters, crossed another plain, very stony and in places swampy, which terminated in a thickly wooded tract of gum and wattle trees. Into this wood we now entered. After about five miles uncomfortable travelling, we reached the Bush Inn. I must here observe that no distinct road is ever cut out, but the whole country is cut up into innumerable tracts by the carts and drays, and which are awfully bewildering to the newcomer as they run here and there, now crossing a swamp, now a rocky place, here a creek, there a hillock, and yet in many cases all leading bona fide to the same place. The Bush Inn, the genuine one, for there are true, consists of a large, well-built brick and weatherboard house, with bedrooms for private families. There is a detached weatherboard and stone kitchen and tap room with sleeping lofts above, a large yard with sheds and good stabling. A portion of the house and stables is always engaged for the use of the escort. About two hundred yards off is the new bush inn, somewhat similar to the other, not quite so large, with an attempt at a garden. The charges at these houses are enormous, five and six shillings per meal, seven and sixpence for a bottle of ale, and one shilling for half a glass or nobbler of brandy. About half a mile distant is a large station belonging to Mr. Watson. The houses, huts and yards are very prettily laid out. "'and in a few years he will have the finest vineyard in the neighbourhood. Two miles to the east is the residence of Mr. Poolett, "'Commissioner of Crown Lands, "'which is very pleasantly situated on the banks of an ever-running stream. "'The paddock, which is a large one, ten square miles, or 6,400 acres, "'is well wooded. "'Some new police barracks and stabling-yards are in the course of erection.' We did not linger in the bush inn, but pursued our way over a marshy flat, crossed a dangerous creek, and having ascended a steep and thickly wooded hill on the skirts of the black forest, we halted and pitched our tents. It was little more than midday, but the road had been fearful, as bad as wading through a mire. Men and beasts were worn out, and it was thought advisable to recruit well before entering the dreaded presence of the black forest." Fires were lit, supper was cooked, spirits and pipes made their appearance, songs were sung, and a few of the awful exploits of Black Douglas and his followers were related. Later in the evening an opossum was shot by one of us. Its skin was very soft, with rich brown hair. SATURDAY THE ELEVENTH A dismal wet day! We remained stationary, as many of our party were still footsore, and all were glad of a rest. Some went out shooting, but returned with only a few parrots and cockatoos, which they roasted and pronounced nice eating. Toward evening a party of four, returning from the diggings, encamped at a little distance from us. Some of our loiterers made their acquaintance. They had passed the previous night in the black forest, having wandered out of their way. To add to their misfortunes, they had been attacked by three well-armed bushrangers, whom they had compelled to desist from their attempt, not, however, before two of the poor men had been wounded, one rather severely. Hardly had they recovered from this shock than they were horrified by the sudden discovery in a sequestered spot of some human bones, strewn on the ground beside a broken-down cart. Whether accident or design had brought these unfortunates to an untimely end, none knew, but this ominous appearance seemed to have terrified them even more than the bushrangers themselves. These accounts sobered their party not a little, and it was deemed advisable to double the watch that night. End of Section 3